Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. The unprecedented coronavirus pandemic continues to spread through communities worldwide with devastating impact on people's health, our economy, and our society. As mayor of New York City, Mike Bloomberg handled a number of public health crises. In 2016, he unveiled a pandemic influenza plan, which included disease monitoring, building laboratory capacity, delivering vaccines and medicines, and preparing hospitals, mental health providers, and city communications for a disease outbreak. He also led the city through the constant threat of bioterrorism attacks, the swine flu outbreak in 2009, and the West Nile virus in 2012. Mike knows that giving public health professionals the tools to protect the public is vital to saving lives and helping mitigate the kind of social and economic data that could make this crisis even more debilitating. Building on his experience, Bloomberg Philanthropies has launched several initiatives to accelerate the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be highlighting each of these critical programs on our show over the next few weeks. In this episode, we'll dive deeper into our $40 million initiative called the Coronavirus Global Response Initiative, which supports immediate action to prevent or slow the spread of COVID-19 in low- and middle-income countries with a strong focus on African nations. To tell us how we can effectively slow the spread of the virus, Dr. Kelly Henning, who leads our public health program at Bloomberg Philanthropies, spoke to Dr. Tom Frieden, the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives and the former director of the CDC under the Obama administration. They discussed the global response to COVID-19, why focusing on low and middle income countries is critical to stopping the spread of the coronavirus and how we can keep our cities running and safe. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. Um, I'd like to take the, uh, a few moments to get us started here and have some conversation about this really important issue that's facing all of us. Um, as the former CDC director under the Obama administration, can you tell us a little bit about CDC's role? CDC is the nation's health protection agency. There are 20,000 public health professionals there who dedicate their lives to keeping America safe. Um, CDC is really our public health agency. And within the Centers for Disease Control, there is a Center for Immunization and Respiratory Disease. They have over 700 professionals who have spent on average 20 years working on viral respiratory infections. So these really are the elite troops in the war against coronavirus. You know, the CDC is uh, estimating between 160 and 214 million people could become infected over the course of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit with us about how we're going to know when the worst is behind us? There's still so much we don't know about this virus. It's only been in the world and among humans for a few months. And we know it's going, unfortunately, to get worse. And in New York City, a lot worse before it gets better. We have three broad goals. First is to reduce the number of infections. Second is to improve the outcomes of people who are infected. And the third is to minimize the negative impact on our society. One of the things that concerns me most is that we're not seeing CDC where we've always seen it before. We don't see it at the table where decisions are being made. We don't see it at the podium where decisions are being communicated. And that's dangerous. That means that our most qualified, most experienced disease fighters 
are not in this fight. It's like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. I'll feel much safer when I know that they're fully engaged in this. You know, CDC was engaged with H1N1, with SARS, and with many of these other epidemics. And yet this seems like, this feels very different, not only CDC's involvement, but just the entire situation and the response. Can you talk about why this is so different from what we faced before? This is an unprecedented threat. We've never before seen a respiratory virus emerge and then spread all over the world. And this is scary because we still don't understand a lot about it. And because it's about 10 times more lethal than a regular flu, and we don't have any immunity to it, and we don't have a vaccine, and we don't have treatment. So this is a, a real emergency. And when we see scenes, as we've seen in Wuhan, China, in Italy, particularly northern Italy, and I'm afraid soon we may be seeing in New York City, we recognize just how devastating infectious disease outbreaks can be and how important it is that all of us do our part, and globally we do our part to why is this so different from what we've faced in the past? The immense economic and social dislocation that this is causing is really different from any other infectious disease since the great influenza pandemic more than a century ago, 1918, 1919. What we really need is the combination of the political leadership along with a rigorous attention to learning more about what we can do to best reduce the impact of this virus and meticulous implementation. Today in the United States, we have a task force, we have a coordinator, we have a vice president, we have FEMA, and it's very hard to know who's in charge. And some of the information we're getting out of the federal government is conflicting and confusing. And because of that, states and localities are increasingly frustrated, but we want them to succeed. We want this to go well because lives are at stake. Absolutely. No question about it. And I, I think you started to touch on some of the global issues in that response. And I want to pick up on that. You know, Bloomberg Philanthropies has just committed $40 million to the global response with a very uh, major uh, focus on low and middle income countries and resolve to save lives. Part of vital strategies that you're involved with is critical to that effort. And uh, I wondered if you could just take a moment to talk a little bit about Firstly, why it's important to think outside the U.S., and secondly, what are some of the things that need to get done in these very uh, fragile locations? We're very grateful for the support from Bloomberg Philanthropies, and it allows us to scale up rapidly in countries around Africa. First and foremost, it's crucial to understand we are all connected by the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the planes, trains, and ships we travel on, and no country can insulate itself or immunize itself from that global connectivity. In fact, what we see here is that we're all really counting on every country to control this. So until we're all safer, none of us will be safe. There are huge gaps in our preparedness in Africa and Asia and elsewhere, and those gaps are blind spots. Some of the things that we're doing in Africa are to improve laboratory testing so we can track where it is, to improve the ability of societies to work together and implement things like social distancing. That's very challenging to do if people show up at the market every day to get food because they don't have a way of refrigerating it. Or how can we ensure that religious ceremonies, which are very important in so many societies, don't result in the explosive spread of uh, this virus? One thing is crucial. 
We have to protect our healthcare workers. We've already seen more than 3,000 health workers in Wuhan, more than 3,000 health workers in Italy infected. We're seeing dozens of healthcare workers here in New York City get infected, and tragically, healthcare workers getting severely ill and dying. In Africa, there are even fewer healthcare workers. There are so precious, so few of them. We have to make sure we can provide care as safely as possible to as many people as possible. You know, Tom, a lot of people uh, feel overwhelmed by the situation in Africa, and about, and particularly with regard to the healthcare system and and the limited resources and the frailty of that health system. But I know you've worked on many things in Africa. You've worked on things like tuberculosis control. You've worked on things like cardiovascular disease. So I think maybe it's not always obvious to people that there really are ways to do this. Could you talk a little bit about how you think this could really happen? There is real progress all over Africa. Take Ebola. Ebola was a horrible epidemic, and yet it was controlled. It was controlled in the three countries that had large outbreaks, and it was also stopped quickly in multiple other countries where there were importations. Uh, tens of millions of people stopped shaking hands for years and started doing the Ebola elbow bump. So you can change culture. In Uganda, where many groups have partnered with the government that's very open to uh, improving its public health system, we've seen the time to detect cases and stop outbreaks decrease from months to days to hours. We've also seen major progress in Nigeria in recent years. In um, Ethiopia, there's an, a wonderful group of health extension workers, all women, 38,000 of them, in every village. And they are able to provide care, do diagnosis, get control of communicable diseases. Every community has strengths. And one of the challenges in all of public health is to identify those strengths and enlist them in support of these common goals. That's great. That's great to hear about. I, I, I want to stay with this theme of global for a moment. Um, we're hearing a lot about China, uh, Japan, Korea, Singapore, some of these localities that have really seemed to tackle this pandemic and come through the worst of it. What do you think are some of the lessons we can learn from that? Are there ways that we could use those experiences in the U.S., in Europe, and some of the countries that are just now starting to see the challenge? We urgently need to learn from wherever we can learn. And there are important lessons from China, from Singapore, from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea. These are places that dealt with SARS earlier. So they were thinking that this could be really bad. And when they heard about this, they began scaling up. In contrast, the U.S. basically squandered a few months uh, saying it was going to go away or it's not a big problem. We weren't ramping up the production of masks and ventilators. We weren't ramping up test kit production, not just at CDC, but through the private sector and hospital laboratories. And now we're behind. But we have examples of countries that have been able to control this. And even in Korea, after they had a lot of spread, they were able to tamp it down. And we now have a new concept of operations. And I do think this should be thought of as a war. I'm referring to it as World War C, World War Against Coronavirus. It is us against the microbe. And we all have to work together. And the concept of operation is that you try to contain it when it first comes in. If it gets out of hand, then you have to just mitigate it and limit the damage. But once you drive it down to manageable levels, 
you can then go into a suppression mode, which is what they're in in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in mainland China, outside of Hubei, even inside of Hubei now, where you're trying to rapidly identify clusters and cases when they emerge and stop them from spreading widely so you don't overwhelm your healthcare system, you don't overwhelm your public health system such that you won't be able to do contact tracing, isolation, and quarantine. But there are tough issues. One of the real debates right now is for someone with mild illness, would it be better for them to stay home or to go to an isolation facility? And I think uh, our colleagues in East Asia are saying isolation because there's a lot of spread at home. Not only is that dangerous for the people at home, but it may perpetuate the infection. We're not there yet here, but we've got a lot of empty hotels. Let's drill down on the virus a little bit. Uh, are we going to have a vaccine? When are we going to have a vaccine? This seems to be a recurring question. We really hope there'll be a vaccine. Vaccines, remember, are the really great public health success story. They have saved hundreds of millions of lives, and we need to pull out all the stops and try everything to get a vaccine. But we also have to recognize two things. First, it's going to take a while. A year to two years is a time frame that's been talked about. And second, it is not certain. We've been looking for vaccines for AIDS, TB, and malaria for decades and don't have them. A vaccine was made against SARS, which actually made the disease worse, not better. So we have to try, but we can't rely on it. We hear a lot about cleaning our surfaces, making sure that we're all um, taking special precautions to not pick up the virus. Is the virus really living on these surfaces? What should people be doing to protect themselves? We learned more about this just last week from a very meticulous study done by CDC and NIH researchers. And what they found was that this coronavirus lives on surfaces in a very similar way to the SARS coronavirus. SARS is also a coronavirus. And that's really important because that means that it can spread from contaminated surfaces just as SARS did. And we know that SARS had what are called super spreading events where it could be a bathroom or an or a elevator button resulted in dozens of people getting infected. We haven't seen a lot of those events with COVID-19, I think because there's so much other spread. They're happening, but they're kind of noise amid the larger amount of spread. But it does mean that we have to be really careful about cleaning things, especially in healthcare facilities. And this is a wake-up call. Even without coronavirus, between 70 and 100,000 Americans die each year in healthcare facilities because of infections. And we need to make healthcare much safer, much cleaner than it is now for patients and for healthcare workers. There's absolutely no question that healthcare workers are on the front line. What do we need to do? What can we do to protect healthcare workers in the U.S. and even elsewhere? There are a whole series of things that can be done, uh, source controls. So anyone who's sick needs to have a mask on. And if there are no masks, anything covering the mouth and nose will help. That reduces the amount of infectious material going into the environment. We have to have administrative policies so that everyone with cough or fever is seen in a separate area. There are administrative and environmental changes that can be made that can drastically reduce the risk to healthcare workers. We also have to make sure there's enough personal protective equipment. Interestingly, in Singapore, where they've had now about 300 cases of coronavirus, they've yet to have one healthcare worker infected in the healthcare setting, even though they're using largely surgical masks. I think this is an example of it isn't how extensive your 
protection is wearing whole body suits, which is what they did in China. It is how meticulous your attention to detail is, making sure that your policies are right, your procedures are right, that you're minimizing risk, and that you're doing everything with great attention to detail, that kind of checklist manifesto that Atul Gawande has popularized, and rightly so, because that's how you get quality. We're hearing uh, more and more now about people who've recovered from the from the viral infection, who are now um, through the worst of it and improving. What can we expect for those people? Do we imagine that they're immune? Do we think that they can um, feel safe at this stage uh, with regard to coronavirus? Or what's where are we with the science around this? We don't yet know. There are some infections which you get them once and you are immune for life. There are others which you get them once and you can get them again. We don't know what this will be like. The disease is so severe. Generally, we think a more severe disease gives you a better protection against it. But we also don't know if the coronavirus will change over time. And I certainly wouldn't think of people like this as supermen and superwomen who can be sent back out to the front lines because they're immune to these bullets. We don't know if they will be protected, though we hope they will be. I have a good friend, a medical school classmate who's got coronavirus. He wasn't severely ill. He's back seeing patients, and he says he's rooting for that immunity. But rooting for it is the right perspective. Counting on it is not. That's good advice. Um, what, what are you telling people who are feeling um, anxious, who are just feeling like this whole situation is out of control? Uh, we, see, we hear a lot about uh, mental health issues and about anxiety. Do you have advice for our listeners who may be experiencing some of those things? This is a scary situation. It's unfamiliar. Never before have we told people to stay home. And it's frightening because there's still a lot we don't know about it. And the images from the worst areas of the world are horrific. That's why it's so important. We all work together. We are all in this together. This is not the zombie apocalypse. It's not going to kill us all, but it is going to help us all understand that we are all in this together, that all of us are safer when each of us is safer. That's great advice. And thank you so much, Dr. Frieden, for being with us on the podcast today. And I appreciate the time uh, during this very, very busy moment. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Henning. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to work with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to Dr. Kelly Henning and Dr. Tom Frieden for joining us. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data podcast and tell your friends to subscribe as well. This episode was created by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Sarah Washington, Gene Weinberg, Eric Levin, Jeremy Kestenbaum, and Lauren Nolan. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Katherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.